Welcome back, everybody, to the second episode of the Mental Health Babble podcast. Uh, it's going to be a great show. Um, today, we are going to be talking about the fault in our thoughts, or, you know, we're, we're going to be examining um, our distorted thinking types based on kind of what we did in the first episode, which was talking about how your story matters. And so today, we're going to be building off of that talking about, you know, the irrational thought processes that, that kind of come from examining that story uh, in your past or the way that those events in your past kind of shape where you're at today based on, uh, on those uh, illogical or irrational thoughts, the distorted thinking types that kind of come from the, the, uh, the story. But before we get into any of that, I do want to introduce a good friend of mine, uh, the, the co-host of the show, and he is a psychoeducational counselor um, with me. We're, we work in the same clinic, Mentally Strong, here in Colorado Springs. Uh, Mr. Andrew, say hello. 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 How are you doing, man? I'm doing good. It's great. I'm glad to be here babbling with you. Yeah. <laughs> so. It's great to have you here, man. Uh, we've we've actually been talking about this for a little bit, and it's it's good that we can actually get you in here and kind of have these uh, real discussions, these conversations about you know mental health topics that matter um, based on you know the the knowledge that we have by doing the psychoeducational process, you know, based on cognitive behavioral therapy, um, and you know the experiences that we we've just kind of taken away from that. Not to mention, you know, academically, we're both pursuing. Um, our licensure uh, to become, you know, professional counselors. And so uh, this is, this is going to be interesting for sure. Mm -hmm, definitely. So you listened to the first episode of the podcast, right? I did. Yes. Okay. So that entire episode was completely based around understanding, kind of decoding, examining the past, right? Um, looking back, understanding why that story matters so much. Can you just kind of briefly, because I, I I want I want everybody to kind of be on the same page. Can you briefly give me an idea of how you felt about that? I I really think that that was such a great place to start because really there's only one way we can ever start, and that's the beginning of all of our stories. If we try to jump in at any point and solve from there, it's it's we're going to be missing so many pieces. And uh, so I think that was the perfect place to set up to begin this discussion about how we're going to maneuver these different aspects of our stories and how we're going to begin that healing process. So I think it really set us up for a great trajectory going forward. Nice. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. Um, and anybody out there listening, if you haven't listened to the first episode, please go back and listen to that first episode. Uh, it's called Your Story Matters, and you'll kind of get the gist, the understanding of what that title actually means when you listen to the episode. It really truly is that examination of past experiences, especially during those very uh, critical early childhood developmental stages. Uh, some of those we will uh, be addressing in today's podcast as well, because it, it's absolutely relevant. So what we're doing here is we're building, we're, we're pulling um, information, very critical information in, in the, in regards to the counseling field, the counseling profession. And we are building off of those very early uh, moments in a person's life. And then now we are examining the thought process processes moving forward. Um, and, and when we talk about that, you know, what we're really referring to are, you know, the cognitive and behavioral things that do tend to pop up later on in life, um, especially during late adolescence uh, and 
you know, adulthood. And these are things like, you know, depression, anxiety, you know, um, arousal of emotions, you know, not understanding the emotions, right. Having these, um, emotional upheavals to specific, uh, critical events in life. And we're going to be talking about, you know, the lack of lack of skills that are typically utilized to control those things. And then, you know, the developmental periods that are relevant to the onset of, you know, some of those, um, later cognitive and behavioral emotional things that, that do tend to pop up. Um, got a lot of great material for today and, and really our goal, our aim is to not, not make this podcast as long as the first one. The first one, I think it was like an hour and 14 minutes. And while I do enjoy a longer podcast, um, we understand that people have busy lives and they like to digest that information, um, you know, in shorter stints. So we're going to, we're going to try and manage ourselves here as best as possible. This is why we're breaking this up into, uh, two different episodes to talk about this one very critical subject, because there's just so much information here. Um, so Andrew, based on your personal perspective and everything that you have experienced throughout your life, how do you feel your thoughts have affected you and your adult life based on experiences from the past? Mm. I mean, <laughs> that, that's, it's, it's been the main thing, really. I can't think of any aspect of my current life that has not been affected by my upbringing from childhood all the way through being in high school, middle school. Those, those uh, middle school and high school actually were two of the most, the most development of my own story and my own character happened in those stages. So it's, it's completely integral in those parts. That's where I really decided that I was going to branch off and go my own way apart from my own family's story. And then that was firmed up during my young adult ages. So, I mean, those, those things truly formed who I am today. I, I cannot say who I am today without those aspects. It's absolutely integral. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I completely agree. And for me, the, the important aspect of everything that I've done as it pertains to my own personal mental health is a lot of, a lot of introspection, a lot of looking back and trying to understand. And, and because I was able to look back and kind of sift through all the details of the past and understand those better, I, I was able to figure out, you know, the connection to my thoughts and behaviors as, as I am now as an adult. And because that understanding existed, I knew the things that needed to be challenged. I knew the things that needed to be looked at and, and, and seriously scrutinized so that I could make effective change in my behavior and my, uh, my mental and emotional state moving forward. And it's been nothing short of absolutely revolutionary. Um, I'm not saying that the inf information that we're putting out here is, you know, revolutionary, never been heard before, never been said before, but you know, it, there, there really is no shortage or, um, there, there is no, um, you know, we, we need to put this information out. It needs to be out there that, so that people can hear it. So based on our own personal experiences for me, you know, I'm, I'm very open about my past, you know, being sexually abused and, you know, some of the things that happened to me while I was being raised, you know, going to church and having, you know, a lot of religious guilt on the back end that, that really altered, you know, um, a lot of my behaviors, you know, the, the death of my mother, um, at a, at a very young age and trying to cope with that. And all of the, the crazy things that came from that, all the thoughts and the way that I formulated opinions about people and life itself, you know, all stem from those past experiences. And so to me, the, the, the thing that interests me the most is why, mm. 
why do we formulate such concrete opinions about the you know people around us our environment you know the world around us at such early stages of life and so the this the research had really been you know let's try and understand childhood a little bit more why is that such a, a serious aspect of our life um so that is what we're gonna we're gonna spend some time talking about and paying attention to today so the first thing that i really want to do is kind of bring about you know a specific understanding of the past and in order for us to do that we need to we need to examine a, a couple of things first the story matters obviously but we need to understand what's happening during those childhood years that is so critical during that developmental period that we are formulating these opinions um about, you know about the world around us our environment so what i did is i looked up you know based on you know some of the things that i've studied academically and i have paid a lot of attention to eric erickson's theory of psychosocial development now there's eight different stages within that theory but the first four are the ones that i'm focusing on because those cover those childhood periods right um i know that you had taken a look at that too what, what are your thoughts on uh what are your thoughts on this I, it was honestly kind of eye-opening to understand because i i knew I, I'm, I'm a pretty emotionally aware person i, I have a pretty high emotional IQ. So I've always been pretty in touch with how I've been feeling and how that's affected my development, but yet to see it in this concrete of a way, um, on how this has been actually spread out and, and pinpointed was pretty eye opening to know that all of these things that I'd been feeling, all these things that I've understood are not necessarily unique to me. I think that's one thing that I find is so interesting about mental health journeys. You know, these things are not necessarily always super unique to us, but we live in those vacuums, right? And we don't know all the information, but once we kind of get that thing opened up, it's all of a sudden, wow, I'm not alone. I have all these other things. There's people in my same story. And that's what this did for me, knowing that this was something that these areas are kind of gave voice to something that I've been feeling couldn't really speak clearly. So it was interesting to kind of dig through it a little bit more. Yeah. I mean, I'm right there with you. So you know, all those questions about the past, you know, all the things that, that happen early on in life, you know, I'm trying to make sense of all the negativity, all the things that, that really formulated my perspective. Right. And we had talked about perspective as, you know, there, there are multiple ways to look at it, but the way that I kind of threw it out there in that, in that very first episode was thinking about it like a, a, uh, panoramic photograph almost. And you cut that photograph up into a lot of different pieces and then you hand them out to individuals. Right. And they're all separate from one another, but you ask them, to tell you what is happening in that picture and they can only tell you what's happening in that little snippet that you've given them and um you know that that's the essence of perspective we all have a little bit of a different perspective and really it doesn't start to make a whole lot of sense until we can start to bring those perspectives together and start to under, understand them as best as possible so like you were saying you know going through these developmental stages they're not unique to the individual those stages are the stages and everybody goes through those and that's that's the the I, I don't want to say funny but that's the interesting part about it is that we all go through those stages and the way that we're nurtured our environment you know all those different factors that come into play really do shift and change that perspective for each and every one of us so based on how we're nurtured and, and you know things happening within that environment it formulates our opinions and, and we gain our perspective based off of that and then we act accordingly later on in life if there is no 
intervention in between, you know, what, what, what's taking place in those early years. And then, you know, obviously adulthood. Um, so I find this to be extremely interesting and, um, we're going to talk about these first four stages and we're going to talk about the relevance at least to, you know, the potential, uh, you know, thought patterns that may erupt from some of these stages, um, because it, it, it needs to be understood where some of these problems are really occurring. Um, and so that, that's what I want to talk about here, uh, first and foremost. So stage one of Eric Erickson's, um, theory of psychosocial development, uh, these eight stages, but stage one is literally trust versus mistrust, which extends from infancy, uh, from birth to about 18 months. Right. And, uh, the trust versus mistrust stage is, is going to be that first stage of, of that theory. Um, it is the most important period of a child's life. According to Erickson, it shapes the view of the world as well as their overall personality. In that very first stage, we're talking infancy to 18 months. It is the most critical stage. It is the most important stage of a child's life. It's, it's absolutely insane. And, and what caught me is that it talks about, you know, shaping their view of the world as well as their overall personality. It, it, it so <clears throat> things that aren't going right within a person's environment at that age is already setting in these these thoughts, these ideas, right? The the brain is always soaking up information, and it does so at, at such an exorbitant rate, especially at those younger years. It's just collecting information as it goes, and when when things are going wrong within an environment, you know these these infants are picking up on it, mm-hmm. and it's already starting to set in a a, a pattern of behavior and and thinking. Um, that, that just, it's, <laughs> it's hard to put in words. I mean, it, it really is just amazing to me. Yeah. And I think about how many times you've, you heard this where a parent will say, oh, well, they're too young. They won't even remember this when they're five or when they're four, you know, this will just be something that'll be in the back of their subconscious. Won't even bother them. And, but it does every little piece, especially in these first these first primary years really make an impact. So it really puts that emphasis on, on really setting that up for our children and for any, any other aspect of that in the best way that we can. Right. And and this is where, uh, in in, in this first stage that Erickson really kind of posits in, in this theory, the, the major question, which is, can I trust the people around me? Can I trust the people in my environment? Now, think about think think about the way that you know society has progressed and uh over the years especially in the united states where you have people that used to live in these nuclear families and they would they would stay married um you know until until they died you know (laughs) typically i'm not saying i mean the, the the statistics are there and obviously divorce is a thing still but you know the 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 morality, the idea that people carried with them was to remain married, right? That, that was, a, uh, that was how people operated, you know, um, mm-hmm. earlier. And so it, it, it had a very specific, um, had a very specific, um, 
impact on the way that that children were raised you know being raised in a nuclear family now there are plenty of studies out there that say that you know there's no issues with with children being raised in a single parent home and obviously I, i'm not i'm not in agreement with that there are obviously very critical things that that each parent in the household provides and they are in, in some subconscious way very much responsible for the progression of of their child's development so by you know the standards of today we have a lot of single parent homes right uh single mothers and and you know in some cases single fathers that are raising children and because that is the case there there are really some some very um interesting dynamics that that do kind of come out of that but in this first stage you know the trust versus mistrust can i trust the people around me and so this is already uh, 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 like Erickson says, this is a, the the most important phase of a child's development is understanding trust. So, what are some things within an environment that you think would would maybe um, you know cause a conflict in in the trust? Oh, you know, well, I, a lot of those things where we talk about. I have a lot of people who come into my office. They talk about fathers who were either absent completely from the home or some parent figure who is completely absent or they were present physically, but emotionally, mentally were checked out. They weren't there. So this space of, you know, wait, this person isn't actually in my place, in my home. And, and then when they are there, at times I've heard it as well in different people's stories that they are not someone who is trusted. They are deceitful. They are, uh, they're wounding in a lot of people's stories, either emotionally, physically, and just really breaks, you know, especially at these early stages where these kids just really need to know that there's hope. They need to know that there is something there that they can really cling to. Right. You see that all the time in my office. It's crazy. Yeah. There are, there are plenty of, of, of real life examples to absolutely go off of there. And I'm sure that, you know, the people that are listening probably have their own ideas um, regarding you know, the trust versus mistrust uh, impact uh, in this first stage. So Erickson really, he kind of put it in there like, you know, there, there will be times where a baby's needs go unmet and that there is absolutely a healthy amount of mistrust uh, within the environments, you know, for infants as they kind of prepare to grow. Um, it's kind of like an inherent property um, that, that we have inside of us that, that teaches us uh, a healthy level of of skepticism in a way, you know, being a little skeptical of things within our environment. Right. And, um, so it, it's funny to kind of look at this and then, and, and break some of this stuff down. So children who learn to trust the caregivers in infancy will be more likely to form trusting relationships with others throughout the course of their lives. So, really what you're doing in this phase of trust versus mistrust is you are creating either trust or mistrust. So if the caregiver is, is attentional and they are doing the right thing within that environment or the caregivers are doing the right thing within that environment, it creates trust. And mm -hmm. in, in most cases uh, there, you know, obviously there is going to be that element of mistrust that, that also takes place, but the trust is quite significant. And later on in life, what we end up seeing is that, you know, trust is a, it, 
if you think about it, right, you, you can't have a relationship without trust, right? There is no intimacy without that basic element of trust. This is something that is formed so very early on and can be broken during different stages of that child's development. But during those first 18 months, this is where they're learning how to trust. Mm -hmm. So later on in life, when you see, you know, relationships and you start talking about, you know, the development of a relationship, you know, if you look at it, the foundation of a relationship is always going to be on top of, of good communication. And then the framework for the actual relationship itself is going to be that trust. So if, if the trust is not present, if people do not learn how to trust other people, mm -hmm. relationships become, become very uh, difficult, uh, among other things as well. <clears throat> so what builds trust, you know, an infant, uh, in, in the care of their caregiver, um, you know, in a safe environment where the infant feels protected, right? Which means that, you know, the, the perception of the environment is not a negative perception. It is one where they feel safe. They feel taken care of, right? The parent reassures, uh, the infant when the infant is scared, um, a mother or father is attentive to their baby's needs. The baby's fed regularly, given affection consistently, um, and, and not, not abused, obviously. Right. Um, mistrust is, is gained when, you know, infants cry and then their caregiver isn't available to meet those needs. So it starts to create an air of mistrust. And there's been a lot of back and forth when it, when it comes to child rearing and, and people say, you know, sometimes, sometimes babies need to, they need to cry. They need to learn how to self-soothe. They need to learn how to do a lot of things during that phase. And so there, there really is, I guess, you know, kind of a fine line when you're walking it to not withhold too much and not overdo it. Right. Right. There, there's obviously dynamics that are going to come out of that as well. Always this balancing act between it. Yeah. So trust is definitely a big one. Trust versus mistrust. Um, you know, that first developmental phase. Um, I think you can, obviously you can, you can make a correlation between trust versus mistrust to, you know, specific situations in your own life. I know for me, um, I, I don't really know specifically, uh, what happened when I was an infant, obviously I don't, I don't have those memories, but <laughs> what I can say is that, you know, somewhere along the way, I feel like I did lose trust in people mm -hmm. somewhere along the way. So whether it was in those very early stages, which I highly doubt, I mean, I, f I feel like my family was very doting and, you know, they, they paid attention to me very well, but, um, somewhere along the way that trust went away. Right. You know? I think about my story. I know that I, I actually was adopted from birth. And so immediately my experience was that of well, your original family of origin could not care for your needs. So we're going to bring you to this new family. And, and I really believe they really did. My family's been great. They took care of me, but still there's, it's very difficult to overwrite that initial transition of family of that biological connection that you have with your family of birth to move to this other family. And there's been lots of studies done of, children who have been adopted and even if they're brought into the best homes there's still that connection issue oftentimes i know that's something that i definitely experienced and oddly enough did not really come to full connection of that until i reached my adulthood stage and so it was very disconnected for me for many years but saw the impact of that later on and so it's it's interesting 
to be able to kind of analyze that. Yeah, that's a that's a dynamic that uh, I've I've kind of been an outsider on. You know, I, I mean, I've obviously I, I have cousins that have been adopted um, and, and brought into you know really good homes, um, probably out of some really negative situations, and so I, I get to see it from that side. You know, but you don't really understand, you know, the psychological effects of it, you know, unless you're really in that position. Right. And so all the studies that they've done. Yeah, that's great. You know, they're obviously they're they're paying attention to people that have been put into those situations. But it's always nice to have that that point of view from somebody that's actually been there. Mm -hmm. And so it, it's good for you to be able to put that out, um, you know, on this podcast and talk about, you know, some of your experiences as far as, you know, the adoptive process and, and the way that, you know, that's affected you not only in, you know, your childhood, adolescence, but also in adulthood, you know, how that, how, how does that affect the way that you think about yourself? You, you know, uh, up until I reached my mid twenties, I really did not believe it affected much at all, you know? And then I got to my mid twenties and, uh, I, I grew up for, for context. I grew up in a tiny town in the middle of Iowa, farm town, 300 people in this tiny town. And I, uh, pretty much just had my family. I didn't have very many friends. I, uh, it was pretty isolated where I grew up. I developed pretty okay. Kind of found out my different things, but then hit my early twenties, moved to Colorado and began to kind of break out my own life. And that's when I began to notice some different things where families were just had different dynamics. And I was like, wait, this doesn't feel normal. Wait, why aren't you like this? This isn't what I experienced in my childhood. And then connecting those dots to saying, oh wait, there's some there's something here that I don't have. And it started to become more apparent by the time I got to my mid to late twenties, I just noticed, wow, I have a difficult time connecting with people. I have a difficult time trusting people. I have a difficult time really knowing that these people are safe if I can really develop that healthy attachment. And it and and once I understood that, I was able to take action in that and I've been able to develop very healthy attachments and I have a very happy life. But um, <laughs> you know, there, it was a it was very much a bit of a a growing and learning process through that. So seeing that firsthand, how that handoff, even though it was really in the best, one of the best scenarios that I could think of, it was really done out of love and wanting to give me a more holistic family. You know, even, even in that state, I still had some of those negative consequences of that transition. And so it, it just, it was very interesting, you know? Uh, I mean, <clears throat> that's awesome that you, you ended up in a good situation. I mean, obviously that that's the goal, you know, with those processes, but you know, it, it, it is very interesting to hear, you know, the way that you've processed that, um, in, in terms of, you know, your, your self-esteem, right. You mm -hmm. know, your, your esteem and, you know, dynamics of intimacy, you know, how you interact with other people and the way that you form, uh, relationships and the effect that that's had on, you know, trust. These are, these are the real conversations. These are the things that people need to hear because this is, this is reality. Reality is that we formulate our opinions, our ideas, our thoughts, you know, all of these different things, our own personal esteem based on a lot of things that have happened to us in our childhood. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for me, because there were, you know, at least a few very negative things that took place during that, that very critical developmental time period, it really did change. It changed a lot. I, I really thought very poorly of myself. Right. I felt, you know, in, in some ways, some cases I felt, um, 
I felt inadequate. I didn't feel good enough. You know, I also obviously, you know, because of the the sexual abuse and, and some of the behaviors that 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 brought on at such an early age, it it caused me to feel a lot of shame and a lot of guilt and a lot of things at a very early age, which are devastating devastating mm -hmm. to a child moving forward right so there wasn't a lot of confidence going going forward into my um adolescent period right early adolescence and then later adolescence when when you really do kind of start to uh solidify that that sense of self mm -hmm. you know you, your your reality is a little bit more ingrained with what's happening around you and so i was a very self-conscious individual and i never really put myself out there right which extends to my adult life. This also created a problem, you know, with, uh, so the esteem apparently was, was an issue moving forward anyways, because mm. of things that happened in the past, but because there was no intervention, right. I, I never really learned how to advocate for myself mm. yeah. and that became a major problem, you know? Mm -hmm. And even today it, it's still very difficult for me to set appropriate boundaries and then stick with those boundaries, right. right. To, to advocate for myself in such a way that I'm not allowing people to take advantage of me. There's just so much, so much that comes from those, those very early years. And I know I keep saying that I'm going to keep reinforcing that because that's what I want people to think about. Mm -hmm. Are my, are my negative thoughts is my negative esteem, my issues with intimacy, you know, my, my inability to trust, right. Or are these thoughts connected to something that happened to me early on? And if so, and I don't understand that, what is that? Right. You know, right. Mm -hmm. So I want to move on to stage two. Uh, it's that the second stage in Erickson's um, theory of psychosocial development is autonomy versus shame and doubt. So this extends obviously from that 18 month period um, up through, what was it? Two or three? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Two or three. So, <clears throat> children at this stage are focused on developing a greater sense of self-control, mm. right? So some of the examples are, can I, can I do things myself or am I relying on the help of others? Right. This is kind of the psychosocial conflict, shame and doubt, you know, when, when an individual learns to, or has this ideal of, of doubting themselves for one reason or another, um, it, it, it creates a very, you know, again, it creates a very strange dynamic moving forward because, you know, that self-doubt, obviously, or, or that feeling of shame, it kind of overrides that sense of autonomy, that ability to be in control of things within your environment. And as a kid, that's, that's an absolutely necessary aspect of that developmental process. This gives you an idea of how to do things to be self-reliant to have confidence in oneself, right? And then moving forward into life, obviously, you know, the implications of this are, are quite severe, you know, if, if, it's, if it's not done correctly. So <clears throat> let's talk about some of this stuff, right? One of them is, you know, the basic virtue is obviously will. Um, and the noted important events are toilet training, right? The, the confidence that, that comes from potty training. <laughs> It's a very confidence building or confidence destroying situation for sure. <laughs> I still don't, I still don't think I got it completely yeah. right. You know? <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> I have those doubts every now and again. <laughs> there are points in time where, you know, yeah, it, okay. It doesn't matter. <laughs> I'm not getting into that. <laughs> we'll leave it alone. That's um, a good, that was a good boundary. I like that. Yeah, yeah. no, I, like I said, it, it's a work in progress. <laughs> Um, but Erickson, Erickson believed that there are interpersonal challenges unique to each stage. Um, and so in this one, obviously we, we need to understand why autonomy matters. 
Um, and, and this one talks about, you know, if you're a parent or if you've ever interacted with a child between the ages of 18 months and three years, you've probably witnessed a lot of, of, um, hallmarks of autonomy versus, you know, shame and doubt. And one thing I can say, you know, at least for my son is I watched him as he progressed from his very early, you know, infancy stages through, you know, some of these, um, developmental stages, um, these later developmental stages, um, and his autonomy was just off the charts. I mean, this kid wanted to do everything for himself. You know, he, he had the, all the confidence in the world. And so it, it really did kind of boil down to, we had to, we had to ultimately kind of weigh the options, whether or not something was safe enough for him to do on his own and let him try it and, and understand that, you know, if we, if we, if we do everything for him, he's not, he's not going to have the confidence to do anything for himself later on in life. And so I'm wondering, you know, what, what are your thoughts on that? You know, that the ability of an individual to be autonomous based on what they learn in, in such an early stage of life, you know, yeah, and that's, uh, it's very crucial you know, and uh, surprise, surprise. I know I talk about, Oh, I had this excellent situation that I was adopted into, but surprise, surprise, it was not necessarily extra ideal. When we talk about this autonomy, uh, it is super important to trust that you've really raised that child to be able to do things well. In my situation, as me being a developing child, I I uh, was raised with some pretty perfectionist parents who had some pretty high standards, and um, and it made it difficult for them to really let go of that control because of a lot of their own insecurities and their own fears. And so, uh, with that coming into play, I found that uh, I really wasn't handed a lot of that ability to be autonomous. In certain things, I was, but in other things, no. And it made it really difficult because I had to develop that much later in life, as in my late teens and early 20s, developing this ability to be confident, be self-sufficient without the need of someone else to meet that need for me. Um, so it was, it was interesting, but it, it's, that's why it's so crucial at these early development stages when intervention can be done before detrimental damage can impact that process and to build that confidence that you do have critical thinking skills. You do have the ability to make a good decision autonomously of that caregiver, of that parental figure in their life. That's why it's so important, you know, because it will affect and it will impact if that is not given at the appropriate time and in the appropriate way. Absolutely. I, I really, I really love the way that you said that. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, you know, just talking about the autonomy, um, you know, moving forward into life and here I am just, you know, the wheel spinning, just kind of thinking of examples of when has autonomy been an issue later on in life. Mm. And really you do see it a lot more these days, right? I yeah. think because of technology, because, you know, parents are, are a little bit more, um, in some ways they're a little bit more, um, how, how would you say it? Mm. Um, kind of maybe standoffish. I don't know. I, I mean, I, I feel like there, there is kind of that dynamic at play where, you know, kids are, coddled a lot yes, you know, during, during yes. these periods. And, and it really, you know, while parents absolutely mean well, they want the best for their kids, they yes. want to protect their kids, right? That That's just kind of like an inherent biological property. Um, you know, autonomy is absolutely important 
to the development of children mm-hmm. and, and Erickson talks about it. Uh, autonomy allows children to, like you said, exercise their critical thinking skills. This is an important part of, a, you know, life. I, I was going to say adult life, but it's, it's important throughout your life. Mm-hmm. These critical thinking skills, these abilities to, or the ability to have confidence in, in the decisions and the choices that you're making, right. And, and think critically about, you know, things that are happening around you and make a, a, a very well informed decision. Um, another one is get this feeling comfortable in their bodies. Mm-hmm. Wow. So I, I'm not, obviously, I'm not going to make any any definitive comments or anything like that. I feel that people are absolutely entitled to, you know, to the way that they feel about themselves. And, mm-hmm. and obviously, you know, in the field that we work in, we, we try to, we try to help and try to guide, mm-hmm. you know, we, we care about people and what we want is for people to be mentally strong and successful in their lives. So obviously, you know, feeling comfortable in their body is definitely a big one. Right. You know, right. and, and this goes to, you know, issues of esteem, like, you know, like we had talked about earlier, you know, and, and just overall that confidence, that ability to go out there. Right. Obviously society has standards when it comes to, you know, what a male looks like, what a female looks like, uh, yada, yada. But, you know, mm-hmm. people are obviously very self-conscious and when they're extremely self-conscious, you know, these, these issues of esteem, definitely it, they, it hinders people from being able to, you know, make the choices that they, they want to make in life for their own happiness. Right. You know, they, they hold back. Um, another big aspect of this is learning from learning from their mistakes. Right. Right. Um, and again, like I said, you know, for me, it's important that my son is as autonomous, well, not just my son, all my kids are as autonomous as they can possibly be. So I, I, you know, I, there are times, there are periods where I've had to stand back and I've had to just mentally, you know, inside my own head, I've had to say, okay, you know, he's, he's going to do this. Mm-hmm. I'm standing right here. If anything really goes wrong, I can, I can intervene but I need for him to make this decision, exercise his critical thinking skills, right. And then learn from the consequences of it, good or bad. Right. Right. So making those decisions, uh, independently is a big one. And then mm-hmm. processing their emotions, mm. emotional processing at this age, right. From 18 months to two or three years old, they need to understand how to process their emotions. Wow. And how many, how many people, have we talked to you coming through don't possess that skill or they're, they're not very good at it. Right. I My, mean, myself included. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I think about that, how, yeah. Um, you know, unless that's a naturally developed thing, you know, if you haven't given the opportunity to even understand that an emotion's okay. I, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to that they come in and they, oh man, I feel depressed. I'm so ashamed that I have this, you know, this shame that comes from, this natural emotion of being depressed. It happens to everyone, but because they haven't been taught to process that emotion in a healthy way and frame it in a healthy way, it, it develops shame. It develops this sense of I'm, I'm, my worth is degraded because I had struggle with this aspect. My worth is degraded because I have this anxiety issue. So now I have to compensate and work harder. And it's just, and that goes back to that identity that goes back to uh, just feeling comfortable in who they are in their own skin. Mm-hmm. And so this one piece of processing emotions healthily and in a, a proper frame 
is so crucial to every aspect. It's, it's, it's almost the cornerstone. Absolutely. I mean, I, just to echo off of what you said, you know, people, people talk about, you know, emotional regulation and things like that. Um, you know, when people come in, we, we often talk about, you know, examining the emotions, right? Everything, everything that we do is about examine your thoughts, Mm -hmm. challenge them. Right. So when people come in and, you know, they're talking about a situation in their life and one of the things that they go to is, well, I'm angry. Mm -hmm. You know, you and I, we both know that anger is, is a secondary emotion, right? right? It's a very real emotion and it's an emotion that we acknowledge, but it is a secondary emotion. And so what we, what we challenge people to do, to do is, um, you know, let, let's look deeper. Let's identify what is the anger actually saying? Right. It's, it's extremely important for us to be able to identify what the anger is actually saying. And, and often I put it into terms like this, you know, think of it like an iceberg. Mm. The anger is what you can see above the waterline, right? The truth and the reality of, of that actual anger is that's everything below the surface of the water. Right. And so there's so much more to it. There's so much more mass to the actual anger. So often people, you know, when they're, when they're working on a process of, you know, emotional regulation, being able to understand where their thoughts are coming from and then challenge those thoughts is an important part of that process, which correlates beautifully with what we're talking about right now. But often, you know, you'll hear them talk about, well, I was angry because, you know, and then when they get that because, right, I I always say, you know, what's the why? What's the reason? Right. right. You know, and so they they talk about it, you know, because and then they they list off what they're really angry about. Mm -hmm. And then as soon as they get to that little nugget of truth, they're able to actually process their their emotions appropriately. And then they start learning those skills. So this is an absolutely, you know, I mean, all of these are extremely critical. I believe that they're extremely critical, which is why we're talking about them. But this one is, is a major one, right? This autonomy versus shame and doubt. We want our, we want our people to be autonomous. And that is, that is um, directly correlated with, with mental strength, you know, mental processing. Mm-hmm. So those of you that are listening right now, I want you to think about it too. Autonomy versus shame and doubt. Think about, you know, the way that you were nurtured in your life, you know, how you were raised and, and did you get that sense of autonomy while you were growing up? Some of the examples that were provided, um, are things such as, you know, allowing their, their child to pick out their own clothes to wear for like preschool or to go to school. Right. And we let, we typically, typically, <laughs> right. Within reason, we let, you know, we let our kids pick out their clothes. Right. And it's just because I want them to have a feeling of obviously a feeling of autonomy, but I want them to feel like they, they have the ability to make some decisions and choices in their life. And this, you know, it doesn't seem very critical, but you know, in the long run, this is, this is building something inside of them, right? That, that autonomy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, obviously, you know, when we're making school lunches and stuff like that, you know, we, we let, we let our kids choose what, what snacks they'd like to, to eat with lunch. Um, obviously again, within reason, right. We, we do set parameters, but then we give them a choice, right? They've got to have that ability to choose. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the, the downsides, right. The, the way to discourage autonomy would be, you know, a parent consistently rejecting their child's ideas. Mm. Now, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be mean. I'm not going to be rude. What I am saying is that it often happens that way. Parents, parents get this mentality. I am the parent. You are the child. You do not get a right to choose. And in a lot of ways, I'm, I'm all for that. 
right? I think if, if my daughter was left up to her own devices, she would get up every day and eat cake. <laughs> you know, I think as all of us probably would have chosen as, as kids, you know, right. so, you know, the rejection of the ideas, I, I, what I don't do is just outright say, no, I don't tell my kids that, no, that idea is stupid. No, you know, right. I, what I want them to do is come to a logical conclusion. So we try and we try and evaluate it. Mm-hmm. So there was a point in time where, you know, my daughter woke up and, and there was a situation with cake. Now somebody, <laughs> somebody can call me out on this if they want to, but there was a situation regarding cake. Um, somebody had made an offer like, Oh, or somebody had offered her like, Hey, oh, you, you want cake for breakfast or something like that. And she, um, you know, obviously she was going to say yes, you know, so we had to sit down and we had to talk to her, you know, like, Hey, do you feel like this is a good idea? Is this a healthy idea? You know, is this going to be the most beneficial thing for you moving forward? And so by talking to her and and helping her understand, she was able to come to a logical conclusion and then she chose on her own, okay, I'll eat something else. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's not so much about just rejecting the ideas. It's about, it's about reframing it. Right. I mean, that is essentially what we, we talk about all the time is reframing, being able to, you know, have a thought and then challenge that thought. And by challenging that thought in a, in a logical manner, it gives us the ability to, to learn and grow from those situations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I like how you use that opportunity that may have been handled differently as a, a teaching opportunity, you know, rather than, and, and I think um, one of the things I was, I was also hearing as we're talking about this is just that in all of these things, there is this balance of allowing these, these development moments but yet frame with framework with boundaries that are healthy and not to the extreme of go and do whatever. And I don't, you know, the absent kind of framework and also not the extreme. You have no control. You have no ability. It's that balance of, yes, you have the power to make decisions, but we are going to talk about how your decisions impact you and help you think critically. Like that was a beautiful example of what that could look like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and I I do want to reiterate, I understand, you know, the, the episode is called, you know, the fault in our thoughts. And and I want you guys to make a a very, very good connection here. What we're talking about is the way that, you know, these, these different developmental stages actually cause a person to think, right? It's the perspective that we gain by the situations that we go through. So what we're doing is we're making a very, a very, uh, calculated, um, argument here to help or not even argument we're, we're providing examples for people to understand you know where some of these negative thought patterns really do originate from so just stick with us a promise you know we're, we're going to get to um actually in the in the next episode this is going to be more of challenging beliefs challenging thoughts challenging stuck points so on and so forth and we'll we'll get into more of that but we're setting the stage for that this is just as important understanding these stages so i do want to move to stage number three um Stage number three is initiative versus guilt. And this one takes place between the ages of three and five. So definitely in this preschool phase, um, children begin to assert their power and control over the world through direct play and other, other social interactions. So this, this becomes, this becomes again, just an, another critical part of that development. So let's talk a little bit about initiative and guilt. <clears throat> so, as it's posited, the, the major question that, that kind of develops here is, am I good or bad? Mm. You know, the basic virtue that's learned is purpose, right? To a degree. 
I, I believe that's the the very infantile stage of developing purpose. But I do believe that it, it, it does exist from a very early age and it does kind of continue to flow with us as we go along. So they're they're developing that basic virtue of purpose. And then the important events are exploration and play now <laughs> in our in our post COVID uh, society and, and you know, even during COVID, um, because of a lot of the, um, quarantines and, and the lockdowns and everything shutting down, you know, kids didn't get to socialize the way that, you know, they, they would have prior to that, um, and, and possibly even in the future. So, you know, I remember growing up, um, I, I, <laughs> I would spend all my time outside. If mm -hmm. I could, I would go outside, you know, the neighborhood kids, we'd go and play games, basketball, ride bikes. And, you know, there was a, um, there's like a little retention ditch, you know, kind of a uh, catty corner to our, um, to our neighborhood. And we would go down there all the time. And that for us was like, you know, playing Indiana Jones, we would go and explore, <laughs> you know, and the culverts and stuff like that. And, you know, we thought it was really cool. Um, but you know, you hear these stories all the time, you know, especially with older generations, you know, they spend a lot of time outside. They spend a lot of time getting lost and, and playing in the woods. And, you know, they, they were using their imagination. They were exploring, they were playing, they were learning how to form relationships. And the question of, am I good or bad was based on interaction. Mm, yeah. So give, give me, <laughs> give me your take on this. I, I, I really kind of want to hear what you have to say here. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, when you give that example of, you know, going out exploration and play, I know that that was a very similar kind of, that was a great point to kind of bring that to with, with just the, the contrast of where we are post COVID during COVID to, you know, just like how it was being, you know, kind of more as a young child during our time of growing up. Uh, Cause it's a similar thing for me. I always had a, a trampoline in my backyard and I was always, you know, out there, I was the ninja doing the backflips with the sticks <laughs> yeah. and, you know, and I, uh, you know, I, I, the interaction I'd have with other people would kind of frame that as well. You know, I, I would, I typically try to pick the boys, be the good guy. I never wanted to be the bad guy. It was kind of always my thing, yeah. but you know, every now and again, I got put in that bad guy space with some of the people that were on that trampoline and like, oh, we're just going to shove you off. Cause you were the bad guy. going to make sure you fall off. Like, I was like, oh no, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I never liked that, but it was interesting to kind of understand that I had a preference in what I wanted. That was the beginning of the development of me saying, no, I prefer to be in this stage, the good person. I prefer to be the hero of the story, not the villain. Yeah. And I developed that, that framework of the purpose that I'm going to pursue good. I'm going to pursue helping, yeah. you know, being yeah. a healing presence kind of thing. That was kind of putting that that framework in so kind of interesting yeah this this whole socializing thing you know especially during that that you know that period of time is it's it's again i'm using this word it's amazing it's absolutely yeah you know it's crazy so i i do remember like during that time period you know power rangers was a big thing you know <laughs> yeah. and that was like our favorite thing to go outside and play power rangers yes. and we we're all 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 of us would fight you know to be the coolest one you know right. i'm gonna be i'm gonna be the green ranger I'm mm -hmm. be, you know um and so we always wanted to be the hero we always wanted to be the good guys and i don't i don't really recall any of my friends just outright saying like, well, I'm going to be the bad guy. You know? Right. We all fought because we wanted to be, we wanted to be cool. We wanted to be the good guy. We wanted to, you know, we wanted to be the hero of the story. So right. there was that kind of that, that development there. Um, but 
in this stage, there, there's really something very critical when it comes to this, um, this developmental stage of initiative versus guilt. And that is understanding how guilt plays a role in this, right? So obviously guilt is going to be a role in people's lives, right? We, we were nurtured in, in such a way that we, we are nurtured towards being successful, Mm -hmm. You know, our parents want us to be successful. Our parents want us to go to school and do well. Our parents want us to develop and, and socialize correctly. They want us to go out and be successful in life. And so again, here we are, we're taking a look at, at some serious dynamics that could take place during this time period that could shift a kid from, you know, being able to take initiative and having confidence in themselves again, coming down to that uh, esteem argument Mm. and then, you know, developing the sense of guilt or shame. Right. And, and what is what is shown here as an example is like, you know, guilt or shame over failing to complete a task successfully, provoking irritation in adults and or otherwise feeling embarrassed over attempting something. And, and listen, <laughs> there's there's two things that are true here. One, school, education, academics, right? Not doing well in school. Obviously, you know, your parents get your report card and they're looking at it. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of, you know, what's going on, what's wrong, why can't you do this right? You know, depending on what the verbiage is, you know, how harsh the parents are. Um, it, it, it alters, alters one's opinion of themselves. And so uh, it does kind of, and, and provoking irritations, irritation in adults. Mm-hmm. So adults that don't have good emotional regulation and, you know, they may come home after a long day. They're probably getting, getting yelled at by their boss or, you know, whatever the job is, they come home, they're in a bad mood, you know, for one reason or another. And the child, you know, is, is trying to get their attention. And then it provokes this irritation, this irritable behavior. And when that that's persistent and that continues for a long period of time, it really causes the child to feel shame, mm. guilt, like they're not good enough. Again, rolling back to the esteem argument. Are you guys getting this? This is not about thoughts anymore. It's about esteem. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, esteem yeah. is a big one though. It right? is. Confidence, it really is. you know, the, the feelings and emotions that we gain from the, the things that we go through in our past. So shame and guilt is definitely a big one. And, and that one carried over for me very big, mm, very yeah. big. And we had talked about, you know, religion and, you know, the religious side of things, there was a lot of guilt on that mm. side. Right. And look, I, I'm as open and honest as possible, you know, being sexually molested at an early age caused, you know, it caused a lot of behavioral things to, to start taking place prior to that puberty phase. Right. Well, obviously, you know, when we're talking about, um, you know, the ideals of religion and, and things of that nature, um, you know, there are certain activities that are, are obviously not, not just frowned upon, but, but clearly, you know, marked down as sin. Mm. Um, and because of that, I spent a lot of time feeling like I was going to hell mm. a lot of time repenting because I, I felt like God was going to, you know, the, the, the old Testament God was going to come after me and, and really start tearing me apart. Right? right. You know, my, there was a fear, fear, shame, guilt, fear, all those things. You, you start looking at those negative emotions, the way that it creates, you know, negative distorted thought patterns moving forward. Mm. It's, it's really easy to see the correlation between those. Mm-hmm. And, and this is it. This is it. Reinforcing positive, you know, positivity and, and, and you know, helping a child understand how to take initiative. And, and instead of feeling shame because they failed something, the, the truth and the reality is, okay, 
you, you took a chance, you didn't do so well. How do we fix this? How do we fix this moving forward? What are right. the steps that we can take to do that? So there's a very nurturing ideal that, that really does kind of fall behind this entire, um, this entire uh, stage of development. So it, it's to limit that feeling of shame and guilt. Mm. Mm. But we got to be careful. <laughs> we got to be really careful. There is a fine line to everything. Do you have any more any right. more thoughts on this? Yeah, I think when you talk about that fine line of shame and guilt, I think that's a really uh, you know the the extreme of you know, let let's fix this, let's fix this, let's you know almost almost every every action we talked about the coddling parents every action almost has that we're we're, we're just going to cover this up we're just going to this didn't happen you know there's no guilt no shame you're fine and then it leads to a lot of times what we can see what i've seen in the extreme of that is oftentimes these people grow up and uh, these kids grow up and they tend to be like well you know i can do nothing wrong every act that i do has no consequence and then when they're met with consequence it's like, wait, you're in the wrong. I'm always right. I I never do that wrong, but that was because they never really had that healthy side of understanding that there is some worth to being able to say, you know, I know that I did wrong. I can have remorse rather than that extreme of, you know, oh, I'm so guilty. I feel so much shame, but it's, you know, I genuinely feel remorseful. I know that I did wrong and I'm gonna take ownership and responsibility that you know i uh i know in my home i definitely was not <laughs> nothing was covered up <laughs> at least not unless i you know not unless i actually did the work to really hide it and that kind of developed some deceit and different things like that later on right uh, because the shame was pretty built on pretty heavy so it was uh it, it it's one of those things where it can be kind of either way it builds that you know, the extreme of the guilt can lead to that deceit. The extreme of the lack of guilt can lead to almost this feeling of, you know, I, I'm never wrong. I, I don't have consequences for these actions. Which right. these, these, these Man, that's, that's a great point. You know, talking about the extremes, right? It swings in both directions. And, and obviously we spend a lot of time talking about, you know, um, the, the very negative mindset, you know, the very negative aspects, but there, there is that, that ideal of, I can do no wrong, you know, and this level of overconfidence, you know, stepping out into the world and, and not really thinking about, you know, consequences and decisions, right. You know, or the decisions and the consequences, you know, the way that you treat other people in life. And then, you know, it kind of develops into this almost narcissistic type mm -hmm. of behavior and tendency, which we see a rise in that big time in it, our time. It does. You it, know, it does seem like we've encountered a lot of that now. <laughs> I mean, that's it, definitely an opinion. It, I'm it, not going to, I'm going to put that there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I mean, opinion for sure. But, but when you really start looking at it, there's, there's an inherent quality where people, and, and this is why, um, you know, the idea of, and the, the philosophical idea of, of being cynical actually exists. It talks about, you know, people only serving their own self-interest, right? Mm -hmm. So only paying attention to what they need, not really caring about anybody else. And so we start to develop these ideas that, you know, people, people just, they don't care. Right. But the truth is it, and the truth is, is extremely different than that. And more often than not, you're going to encounter people that do care. They do want to help. Maybe they just, you know, there, there may be things standing in the way, mm -hmm. neither here nor there, but that is, that is very good that you brought that up. You know, extreme guilt causes, causes a lot of problems and extreme, you know, overconfidence, you know, also causes a, a completely different set of problems. 
but you know, shame, fear, guilt, all those things that, that do develop during those childhood phases based on, you know, that, that nurturing does become a major, major, major player later on in life. It becomes a major player. People have, you know, severe anxiety, you know, there. So again, another thing about anxiety is that it, it, it's something that we're born with first and foremost, right? That is your brain, you know, your brain is developing this idea of what's safe and what's unsafe. And so based on the information that it's collecting, going through these developmental stages, that anxiety is on the rise, right? Mm-hmm. based on based on certain events right and so to see the manifestation of that anxiety it can happen in in any of these um, developmental time periods so either childhood adolescence or in adulthood or you you can see that manifestation of the anxiety really starting to come out in those you know later adolescent years straight into adulthood and then you see the behavior starting to follow right um, there, there is no spe- specified manifestation of these behaviors, but you do see it, uh, quite frequently, um, because parents are not, they're not child rearing experts and that's okay. They're not child rearing experts, <laughs> but you know, there, there are, are serious consequences that do, uh, come from all of those, those different, um, negative, you know, emotions. Right. Right. Um, I do. I am keeping an eye on the time, <laughs> but I, I we're we're kind of on a roll here. So let's let's go through the fourth stage real quick. Uh, industry versus inferiority and in, and in psychosocial development. So during the stage of industry versus inferiority, a child is learning new skills. When they productively navigate the stage, they feel useful and develop a sense of self worth. Hmm. 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 <laughs> Coming back on that, uh, that, that esteem mm-hmm. once again, you know, this sense of self-worth, everything seems like it's compounding at this point. And, and it's coming down to a very central internal dialogue narrative. And, and that major question that they, they kind of posit in here is how can I be good? Mm. There's a lot of trying to understand how, how can I be a good person or, you know, am I good? And, you know, based on, the, the events that take place during those, those developmental periods, I think people kind of get their answer in, in a lot of different ways. And there's a lot of confusion uh, mentally, emotionally, and then obviously where the mind is at, the behaviors are going to follow. So if, if a person really does believe that they are a bad person, mm. they, they act in kind, um, maybe not because they, they really necessarily want to, but because that's what has kind of been ingrained inside of them. And I've actually talked to a couple of people who, who corroborate this, this feeling, right? Like, um, you know, I'm the black sheep of the family. And because people think I'm the black sheep of the family, um, you know, I don't feel like I'm going to be able to change anybody's mind. So I'm going to continue to act according to, you know, the way that other people think about me right? because of a low esteem, never really learned how to love yourself, care for yourself, you know, to truly invest in yourself because that wasn't, that wasn't the inherent skill that you were being taught growing up. And then also, you know, the, the boundaries understanding, right? Like you are an individual, you have every right to set up boundaries in your life, healthy boundaries in your life that do manage what you are allowing in and what you are also putting out into the world. Mm-hmm. Two, two things that, you know, people need to think about as far as setting boundaries in their life. Um, thoughts. Amen. <laughs> no, definitely. I think it all kind of gets back to, you know, this, the, the self-worth, I think it's funny. Esteem really is kind of that big framework of, uh, well, and it's like, we talked about that in the, uh, one of the very early stages, that identity piece that begins to form so early. That is everything that we're talking about. That's I'm very, 
most often what I'll focus on and what I focus on as well is just this building up this form of identity and being able to understand that if it was not built up correctly, it can be changed, it can be shaped, and it can be remolded to kind of be back in that. So it's like to kind of answer that question, how can I be good? You know, what's what is good? How do we define that is a question that we'll typically ask ask in that identity building stage and what is good to this frame of reference how do we want to form that into that life and so it's 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 just such a i mean this stage is so great i like that this is kind of bringing out that confidence you know yeah, making sure yeah. that everybody knows that you know these are the things that kind of reward that kind of behavior this this definitely like i said you know this builds over time you know and if you look at the you know autonomy versus shame and doubt right obviously autonomy is where we're we're trying to build confidence and and skills and function and stuff in the in the individual child and one of the key stages or one of the key uh pieces of inf in industry versus inferiority is um you know children developing various emotional and social skills but attempting to navigate and face challenges on their own without you know too much um, too much involvement from, you know, the parent, the caregiver, you know, however you want to refer to that. Mm -hmm. So again, we're, we're talking about, you know, this is, this is building an individual up, you know, when you, when you start thinking about, you know, raising a child, you're, you're instilling personal values and, and your own personal biases and all these different, you know, thoughts and ideals into the, the mind of this child. And while that's taking place or they're, they're still developing a, a personal identity, everybody has one. And so you, you know, you often see a lot of the resistance coming in and, um, you know, somewhere in that, in that, uh, adolescent phase where, you know, people start to rebel against their parents and, and they start kind of going off on their own. So by paying attention to, you know, these, these necessary stages, uh, especially when it comes to autonomy versus shame and doubt, and then initiative versus guilt. And then again, to industry versus inferiority, if these things are nurtured correctly, you know, you, you see somebody that is more of a, more of a well-rounded individual who is capable of facing challenges in life and, and doing so with confidence, but also with a, a some sort of moral compass that is going to keep them from, uh, hopefully, hopefully keep them from, um, you know, developing into a, um, bad person, which again, you, you kind of posited that, that philosophical question, what is good? Who determines what good is? Right. Right. And typically good is, is a standard that or a, a set of morals that is, is pushed forth by a majority, particular, particularly within a society. Now you have subgroups and subsets of, um, you know, society, obviously, you know, people believe or belong to different organizations. They come from different cultural, religious, backgrounds and and all of those have their own uh, ideals and standards as far as you know moral govern governing takes or as that as moral governing is concerned so i'm kind of tripping over my words here um, <laughs> but you know the important thing is that we are we're, we're trying to we're trying to be uh, good we're trying to be good people and and by that definition of good is to um you know, be strong, be loving, be caring, right? You know, people talk about the golden rule, do unto others as you would have others do unto you, right? You know, be a kind person, be a, a caring and and nurturing individual and, and be fierce when you need to be fierce and be strong, you know, um, be strong-willed in mind and spirit and body and all of those things. I mean, being good is not just being weak. It's not a meekness, 
you know, there, there is an inherent property of strength that exists within, within that as well. And people need to hear that mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong with being strong. There's nothing wrong with being, uh, by having a, you know, a strong mind and a strong sense of self and all of those different things. Being strong is a good thing. Right. And I, and I think where the virtue and strength comes is in being strong and not being a bully, right? Not pushing people right. around. You have the strength, you have the you have the intensity, you have the ability to do those things, but you reserve that and you only use that when it's absolutely necessary to defend or to care for people um, in, in potentially uh, very intense situations. So um, industry versus inferiority, it absolutely matters. You know, learning emotional and social skills, uh, learning how to face challenges, make attempts to navigate those challenges, and and to do that with all autonomy. Uh, very important, obviously, it's very important. Um, and and everything that we've kind of talked about, like I said, you know, builds on top of each other. And then you do find later on in life, um, you know, which of these skills were nurtured, you know, which which of these stages were were nurtured in a, in a good way, and which ones could use some work later on in life. And that is the point that we're kind of driving to here. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> So this was kind of the, this was kind of the explanation. What I was going for was to have a better understanding of those first four stages that, that really covers anywhere from infancy all the way up to about 11, 12 years old. Um, stage five really kind of gets into identity versus confusion. And, and I'm not going to bust into that because then we start talking about adolescence and, and I'm not, not quite ready to go there yet um, because I, I do believe a lot of those early stages in life are some of the most significant stages that a, that a person goes through. You know, the sense of development, you know, the sense of, am I a good person? You know, shame, guilt, autonomy, taking initiative, all, all of those things are very compounding. And you do see that, that progression throughout life. And obviously there are events that can um, change an individual's ideas. Um, obviously traumatic events can take place at, at any point in a person's life. And that can obviously change their thought process and patterns. But a lot of those, a lot of those mental skills are learned very early on. Mm-hmm. And resiliency is one thing that we, we didn't really bring up or mention, but I am going to mention it now. Resiliency is a major part of that autonomy mm. to understand failure and to see it as a learning opportunity, a chance to rise above and, and do something greater. Um, obviously, you know, bouncing back from a very, a very difficult thing. Um, having that resiliency is it's, it's absolutely paramount to success in life. So, you know, whether it's learned during childhood or at a different phase of life, it's, it's absolutely necessary to learn how to be resilient. Right. Right. Mistakes are just learning opportunities. That's the best way to think of it. So what you got for me? So when you were talking about, uh, this idea of, you know, being able to not just be of what is good, you know, how do you frame that the idea of good and, you know, being this, you know, it's, it's not being weak. It's not being this timid, almost, I don't know, the term that comes to mind is flaccid. I know it's kind of a whole, but, uh, you know, it's like a wet noodle kind of prefer, thing. Prefer meek and mild. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll stick with meek and mild, okay. but, um, but instead of being that, I, uh, Jordan Peterson has this great quote that kind of came to mind when uh, I thought of that. It says here, uh, 
he he kind of is known for making the statement of saying the best men that I know are dangerous. And the the quote that he says, a harmless man is not a good man, or you can even say a harmless person is not a good person. A good person is a, is very dangerous who has it under voluntary control. They can access this authority, this power, this ability to go and make authoritative decisions to be critical thinkers to be leaders to be initiative without being a bully without being out of control and they can use that in a way that actually brings out good things and i think that's such a contrary thing to what often is heard in this culture of you know we talk about toxic masculinity masculinity where Oftentimes, men are shamed for being strong. Men are shamed for showing authority. And it's often because they don't necessarily have it under control. But the great way you can do that to frame it is this strength, this power that men, women, all individuals can exude is best used when it's under control. It shouldn't be completely muted. It should not be removed. We don't neuter people. We give them the ability to control. And that's where healthy development, that's where these stages are so crucial. Learning to think critically, learning to know your identity, learning to know what is good. What does that look like? Putting that into practice in a way that you can think critically and act on that in an authoritative way so that you can actually use this authority, use this strength that every person has the capability of having for good rather than being abusive or a bully. Yeah. No, I, I, I absolutely love it. And, you know, Jordan Peterson is someone that I, I do follow quite closely because he, he is a man of principle. He stands on that principle and he doesn't back down from it. Now, look, I know everybody, everybody has their opinions and ideas and, and it's not that I endorse everything that every single person says, but I, I really do like this. I, I like it because it's true, right? There, there's a virtue in that strength and that virtue is, you know, being able to restrain that. I mean, it's, it's absolutely true, right? right? I mean, being strong, there's nothing bad about, you know, being able to defend your loved ones and take care of the people, you know, to do the, do the things, do the hard things that other people may not have the, uh, the ability to do. So it's, it's extremely important. Um, man, I, I tell you what, we, <laughs> I try to make a promise not to, not to go over an hour and here we are over an hour. So I'm going to start wrapping things up here, or we are going to start wrapping things up here. Uh, first and foremost, I want to point out that we are going to post a link, um, from where we got this information. It is going to be on our, on our Facebook page. The Facebook page itself is mental health babble. So you should be able to find us easily on there. Please come and join us. Um, we're, we're always putting out nuggets of, of wisdom and, and, you know, just really great, um, thought challenges throughout the week, you know, to try and try and get that, that brain working a little bit. We're going to post this link there and I want you guys to, you know, if, if you really can open up the link, go look at these, these stages that we were talking about, you know, stages one through four, you can do all eight if you really want to, but one through four are the ones that we're talking about and try and try and understand the development of, of sense of self esteem, you know, shame, guilt, autonomy, all those different things and how that, how that converts into, you know, um, these illogical thought processes moving forward, you know, the way that people think about themselves, the way that they think about the world around them, how would these cause problems later on in life? We're talking about anxiety, guilt, or uh, shame and, and depression and, uh, you know, just poor emotional regulation, things of that nature and, and everything that's really kind of tied to that. Again, this is, this is just building off of your story. 
-hmm. You can look at your story and you can look at these different developmental stages and you can, you can, I guarantee you're going to be able to pinpoint some things and be like, Oh, wow. I, I feel like maybe I, I missed a couple of things and, and that's okay because we all do. There, there is no such thing as, as a perfect parent. There's absolutely exactly. no such thing as a perfect person. We all have fallen short in in whatever ways that we have, and it doesn't make us bad people. It just, it makes us human. That gives us an opportunity to learn and grow from those things. And that's exactly what we're trying to do here. We're trying to accentuate mental strength and growth through this informational process to, to, we want to hand it all over to you guys and let you digest it. However you do. And, um, you know, gain some knowledge and insight from this. Mm-hmm. So moving forward in the next episode, what we're going to do is we're, we're going to build off of this we're going to go into uh, challenging distorted thinking types. You know, what are distorted thinking types? What are stuck points? What are, what are these ways that we think about ourselves, how to challenge negative esteem and, and things like that. We're, we're going to provide a little bit of information as far as how challenging those, those thoughts, those beliefs is such an important part of this process. And, um, you know, that's going to be, that's gonna, obviously it's going to be part two of, uh, the fault in our thoughts and, um, I, I just really many more great things to come. And as we kind of develop, obviously we're, we're going to get better, you know, as a <laughs> yes. team, I don't want, I, don't, I really don't want this to just be dry. I, I, I want you guys to, to be able to kind of have fun and laugh with it and, and stuff. Exactly. And, um, uh, we're, we're going to get there. Just, just stick with us. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're very much in our, uh, what is that? The stages we're in, our, we're in our very beginning stages. This, I think yeah. we're, we're learning trust and mistrust right now right. in our podcasting. So, so bear with us. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. so at, at this point, um, I, what I'm going to do is, uh, Facebook mental health babble, Facebook page, please come in and like, and follow that page, interact. You know, there's, there's ways to contact us on there. Um, obviously there's an email address. If you guys have questions, if you have any, anything that you want to hear any subjects that, that may stand out to you that you, you might want to, um, you know, hear us talk about, or just get, get some additional information on, please reach out to us through there. Um, now I did a thing and I also started a couple of other accounts. <laughs> oh, I do have a Twitter account and uh, one follower right now, which is okay. It's okay, right? <laughs> gotta start somewhere. We're, we're fresh. We're new in this uh, in this uh, social setting. Uh, but you can find us on Twitter. It's at mhbabble. Again, Twitter at mhbabble. Um, come on there, give us a follow again. You know, we're, we're doing kind of the same thing that we're doing on Facebook. We're putting out nuggets of information and, you know, just useful information that you're, you, you may, um, you may like, so follow us there. If, if Twitter's your thing, if it's not, I completely understand 110%. Um, and we are also on Instagram, man, got yeah, quite man. the presence going out there. Um, I'm trying, I'm <laughs> trying hard. So we are on Instagram and, um, you can find us on Instagram. Uh, the username is mental health babble. Obviously you can come and find us there. Uh, mental health babble. We try to keep it as simple as possible and hopefully that's simple enough. So Facebook, uh, Twitter, Instagram, Instagram, I'm going to be doing uh, midweek updates. You know, you might, you might get to see my face from time to time, uh, potentially Andrews, and we're, we're going to start positing some thought challenges, and we'd like to get some interaction on that and uh, potentially get some movement. The goal here is to is for us to grow together. 
right? Learn from these topics and send these out into the world. So please don't be selfish with the information. We, we know that there are some of you out there that are listening. We've gotten some positive feedback from a few different people at least. And I, I, I to those of you who know who you are, <laughs> thank you very much thank to everyone you. else that's listening and, and you know, is digesting this information. You are just as important. We love all of you guys. We really want to see you be successful. We want to, we want to celebrate with you and your, and your mental and emotional growth. And we want you to pass this along. Don't be greedy with the information, send it out friends, family, you know, your grandma, your grandpa, your aunts, your uncles, you know, your, your nieces, nephews, I could name them all. I'm not going to, but send them out there. Um, and let's, let's grow, let's grow together. Andrew, yes. any, any final thoughts before we close this out? The last thing that I was going to put in there that I want to make sure, uh, wherever you may find yourself in these stages of development, maybe you, maybe through our conversation, you identified that there was some thing, some lack that you had during one of these pieces of development. Maybe you are one of the parents that sees, man, I didn't do this part right. Just like what Kenny was saying, that's okay. We, none of us are, per, are perfect and we all have a stage that we need to just be able to jump in and learn and grow. So this may be a great opportunity for you to say, hey, today is a good day to start to change these things. And I'm looking forward to next time when we can actually start to talk about the ways that we can change this dynamic because yeah. none of this is permanent. None of this is actual uh, permanent damage unless we want it to be. You have a choice. That's the thing I tell everybody. You have a choice. Absolutely. So you have this choice to say, I'm going to be different from this point on. So we'll work on that together. Looking forward to it. Yeah, that that is the absolute, um, you know, definition of what we do on a daily basis, psychoeducational counseling at Mentally Strong here in uh, Colorado Springs. If you want to look us up, please go to the website, mentallystrong.com and have a look around. There are plenty of ways to get in contact with the clinic itself. If you're in the area, um, please reach out and give us, give us a, give us a shout and let us know if there's anything that we can do for you. Um, we want you to be able to think more clearly. And, and the, the entire essence of what we do is think, organize, and choose. You, you got to think about what's going on. You got to be able to organize the information and then make different choices based on, you know, the, the skills that you learn through that process. So I, I fully agree with what Andrew's saying. We're here because we want to help you accentuate mental strength, mental and emotional strength and clarity. And he was absolutely right in saying this. And I'm going to echo this because it was that right. Your mental health is up to you. Mm -hmm. It is, it is absolutely your choice. And if you feel like you don't have a choice, come and come and see us and let us help you figure out how to get to a place where you can make those choices, but it is absolutely your choice. And we're, we're going to work on this, man. I'm so excited about everything that we're doing and how this is going to move forward. I know the information is here. I know it's great. And, um, uh, we, we just appreciate all of the love and the outpouring of support that we've had so far. And we just look forward to continuing this journey as we go along. You guys are awesome. Yeah. And, and you're growing every single day. <laughs> Amen. Yes. Yes, you are. Yeah. All right. Well, look, we're, we're going to shut this down uh, until the next episode, which again, I'm dropping them every week. So be on the lookout for that. Also be on, uh, go, go and find us at our social links. And uh, again, don't forget you are mentally strong. Yes. <laughs>